Just a couple of weeks ago, on July 29th, one person in the state of Illinois won the Mega Millions jackpot. $1.3 billion! Good night! What are they going to do with all that money? We might have a building project they could donate to. And we don't know who won that, jock, that jackpot, but I, I want you to think for a second, I want you to imagine for a second that it was you. Uh, don't get too excited. Because in addition to winning that jackpot, or even though you won that jackpot, I want you to imagine that the next morning you woke up and you went down to your kitchen and there on the kitchen counter are all the bills that are yet to be paid and you're still wondering how you're going to pay those bills. Or you're thinking about the, car, the tires on your car and you know that you need to get new tires but maybe you're hoping that you can get just a few more miles out of the ones that are there. Or the air conditioning in your house is making a really weird noise and you're just praying that it can hang on for a few more days in these hot Texas summer days. None of that's rational, right? None of that makes sense. If you just won $1.3 billion, you wouldn't be worried about the bills. You wouldn't be worried about the tires. You wouldn't be worried about air conditioning units. You would simply live out of what has been given to you. That's the point of today's text. The preacher comes to his congregation and says, how come you're not living out of what has been given to you? How come you're not living in light of what Jesus has done for you? In verse 19, he uses that great word, therefore. You know the old joke, anytime you ever see a word therefore, you always look to see what it's there for. What is it there for? It's there for because everything that has gone on before, all nine chapters leading up to this point, our preacher has been patiently making the case that Jesus is better, that this congregation can't turn away from Jesus, that they have to understand that everything he has done for them has, has brought them from death to life. And now they simply need to live in light of everything that Jesus has accomplished. Or in other words, you won the lottery. Now start living like it. Live like the billionaire that you are. This morning I want to look at three ways that we need to live in light of what Christ has done. I want to look at one warning of what happens when we don't. And then I want to look at one encouragement for all of us who sometimes find ourselves teetering on the edge. Wondering if we can hang on one more day. First, the three ways that we need to live like we've won the lottery. The, the three ways that we need to live in light of all that Jesus has done for us. Look at verse 22. Our preacher says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. 
By now, if you have been with us for at least a couple of weeks as we have gone through this sermon series in the book of Hebrews, you know how remarkable that kind of language is. Drawing near, entering into the tabernacle, entering into the temple, going straight into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. That wasn't something that ancient Israelites could ever hope to do. And yet this is the wide open invitation to you and me. All the barriers to access to God have been removed. Nothing can now prevent us from drawing near to God. Not Israel's priesthood, not the Mosaic law, not the fact that anything, even your own sin can't prevent you from drawing near to God. But to secure this remarkable access, something equally remarkable had to happen. It's not that the temple regulations changed. It's not that we found a loophole that allows Gentiles to move from beyond the court of the Gentiles into the Holy of Holies. It's not that we figured out that both men and women can be high priests so we can go in as well. No, actually verse 20, it says something new has happened. A new and living way has been opened through the curtain. And here our preacher is drawing from the imagery of the temple, which these old, old, uh, these, these ancient Christians who had converted from Judaism to Christianity would have understood. Something new has happened. Just as the curtain was the means of access into the temple, Now he says that the body of Christ crucified for us is the means of access. Just as when Christ was pierced on the cross by the nails and by the thorns and by the spear, just as his body was opened, so also that temple curtain has been opened. And the heavenly sanctuary is now available for you and for me. Draw near. Friends, it's important for us to regularly draw near. Because when we draw near to God, when we enter into that heavenly sanctuary, we see ourselves as we truly are. And we see the world as God intends it to be. When we draw near to God, we see ourselves and we see the world as God intends them to be. You heard the language of the preacher here in verse 22. You are 23. We have a true heart in full assurance of faith. Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. I asked you last week, how many of us feel pure? How many of us feel like our consciences have been cleansed? Not one of you raised your hands. Of course, we couldn't, could we? But here he promises that when we draw near, we are who God intends us to be, washed and pure. And the world is as God intends it to be, centered on the immediate presence and power of God. When we draw near to God, we participate in an expectant and in an anticipatory way, the renewal of all things. 
We experience, at least in a small way, the fullness of the blessings of God. And that encourages us in our pilgrimage. Friends, this isn't some mystical experience that only a few of us can have. I know that many of us have had this experience in our life. I know that it's happened for you where you have tasted that, where you've seen that, where you've felt that. Maybe it was after a particularly moving worship service where you felt like you had been in the presence of God as if God himself was speaking to you, a sense of nearness and closeness to God. Maybe it was through your own private prayer and Bible study where through that time you felt like you had been lifted from this world into the next. For many of us, it's time with Christian friends an evening over good food and drink that you just never want to end because it feels like heaven. Drawing near to God allows us to see. It allows us to participate in his vision for the future, to be caught up in his goodness and in his glory. How are you supposed to live like you just won the lottery? How are you supposed to live like everything that Christ has done for you is true and is meaningful and is powerful? Well, the first thing that our preacher tells us is draw near to God. Second thing is in verse 23. We must hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is at least the fourth time that our preacher has told his congregation to hold fast. And each time he uses those words, the focus isn't on your strength. The focus isn't on your ability to grip. Instead, the focus is on the trustworthiness of God. And the same thing is true here in verse 23. Look at the end of verse 23. Why do we hold fast? Because he who promised is faithful. Friends, God does what he promises. And the Bible is filled with examples of his trustworthiness. But sadly, you and I often lose sight of God's faithfulness. And that's when our grip begins to loosen. One way for you to strengthen your grip, one way for you to hold fast this morning is to remember your Ebenezer's. You know what that means? That verse that comes from Come Thou Fount, we sing it all the time. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Maybe you just sang that and you thought, it's just one more weird song Redeemer sings that I don't understand. And Ebenezer was a memorial stone. Ancient Israel would erect them around the country. Sometimes it was at a place where God had shown up for them. And as they would erect that stone, it would become a permanent marker of God's faithfulness to them. So that when they were out walking later on, they could stumble across that marker and they could stop 
and remember God's faithfulness. Or in future generations, they could tell their children and their grandchildren and their nieces and their nephews about what God had done for the people before and how God could be trusted to be true to his promises that day too. Friends, where are the Ebenezers in your life? Do you have them? If you don't, your grip will slip. Because every day you'll wonder, can God be faithful? And it'll be as if you've never asked that question before. But if you have a list in your own mind or maybe stuck into your Bible or someplace that you can access it, a reminder of all of the ways that God has shown up for you, the answer to your prayers, the way that he has provided where it just didn't seem like anything else could happen. Friends, those are the reminders that you need to strengthen your grip in the midst of whatever trial or temptation you face. Because when you see God's faithfulness to you in the past, you can be confident that he will be faithful to you in the present And you can know that he will be faithful to you in the future. Draw near. Hold fast. The third thing that we need to do to live in light of all that God has done for us in Christ is to stir up one another. Look at verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I pulled out one of my old King James Bibles this week to look at how the King James Version puts that language, because I remembered from a kid using that King James Bible that it was slightly different, and of course the word word that they use in the King James is provoke one another. That's your job. Go out and provoke ye one another. No, not that kind of provoking, right? Instead, it, 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 that there should be this sense of intentional action. Not just thinking, that, oh, somehow this is going to happen if we all gather together. No, but when we gather together, when we share our needs, when we encourage one another with the gifts that God has given us, when we point each other's faces up to see the day that is drawing near, We help strengthen one another. We need one another to do this. Uh, The Landry household right now is consumed with preparation for for fall sports. Uh, The kids are leaving early in the morning for two-a-days and early morning workouts. And some of you remember that, or maybe that's the, the same thing that's happening in your house right now, too. The coach is getting us ready for the first game under those fabled Friday night lights. Everybody comes home tired and dirty and sweaty. Let me ask you, because I know the answer at my own house, but let me ask you, if you remember those days or if this is happening at your house, how was your training regimen on your own? How did you do when you didn't have the team there, the coach there to provoke you? into doing the things that you needed to do to be ready for the game? How successful were you before those mandatory workouts began? Did you read the plays? Did you lift the weights? Did you do the conditioning that maybe you had to do as a team? 
Not at my house, we didn't. No, we need the team. We need the coach to push us. We need the team to support us. Friends, in the same way, Christianity is a team sport. We need one another if we're going to last. So let me ask you, who's your one another? Who are the people in your life that you know will provoke you to love and good works, that will encourage you, that will challenge you? To whom do you look to, to link arms as a fellow pilgrim, to walk this pilgrim journey? Friends, a lonely Christian is an emergency. One of the gifts of Christ's work is that he has made us into one body. And if you are out as a lone ranger doing your own thing, you are in danger. God has given us brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. He is building us up into a new people because we need one another to live this life that he's called us to. Draw near. Hold fast. Stir up and encourage one another. That's the appropriate response to everything that Jesus has done for us. But there is an inappropriate response. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is the third time our preacher has given a solemn warning against apostasy. This warning is not oriented toward the Christian who struggles with sin, the Christian who is, we're going to find later in chapter 12, has sins that so easily entangle them. Instead, this warning is aimed at those who have walked away from the Christian faith who have said that everything that Jesus has done for me, ah, who cares about that? It's not even true. When you reject that sacrifice, there is no other sacrifice to find. It's only that sacrifice that can cleanse us from our sins. It is important for us to remember that apostasy is a sin in the church. Apostasy isn't a sin out there that our unbelieving friends and family struggle with. It's a problem for those who at some point professed the same faith we did. And then slowly but surely the pretense of religiosity began to fade away until they utterly rejected Christ and his church. They profaned the blood of Christ. They turned away from the community that they were once a part of. How does this happen? How can something like that happen? You and I both know people, even pastors, that have walked that path out of the church, away from Jesus. How did they fall away? Instead of drawing near, they turned away. Instead of holding fast, they gave up. Instead of stirring up and encouraging one another, 
they neglected their brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, friends, hear me, understand me. Someone who has been justified by Christ will be glorified. And the one in whom Christ has begun his good work, well, Jesus will complete it. And the one who has been loved to life by God, nothing will ever separate him or her from that love. But this warning for the third time is here for a reason. You need to heed the warning signs of coldness in your own heart. Coldness toward the things of God. Coldness toward the people of God. Pay attention when the promise of this life seems more real, more powerful, more enticing than the promise of the life to come. Test your handhold. Are your fingers slipping? At the end of this text in verse 39, our author assures the congregation that they are not of those who shrink back and be destroyed. But friends, he warns them three different times in this book because he wants them to know that the benefits of Christ are too great to ignore. Three ways that we need to live out of this reality to to grab hold of the benefits of Jesus. One warning. And now finally, one encouragement. In verses 32 and following, our preacher ends with an encouragement to endure. You know, despite all the difficult things he says that they have already gone through, and he names sufferings and public reproach and affliction, prison, the theft of their property. He says, you've gone through all of that already. Why give up now? You've already gone through the hardest part. Don't give up now. Just as the day is about to dawn, look at what you've already endured. Hang on. I wonder how many of you know who Ronald Wayne is. I didn't before this week. But he was the third employee of Apple. Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and Ronald Wayne. In fact, he was the one who drew the Apple logo for the very first time. He owned 10% of the company, but in 1976, he sold his shares back to Steve Jobs, back to Steve Wozniak for $2,300. Today, Apple is worth $2 trillion. What's even crazier is that he held on through the 1990s the original founding document for Apple. And he sold that for $500. In 2011, that document was sold for $1.3 million. Ronald Wayne 
for $2,800 gave up on Apple. He didn't know how to wait. Two times he lost out on a great reward. Friends, are you on the verge of giving up? Has it become too difficult for you to believe the promises of God? Does it feel like you need to do something different? Guys, our preacher is a realist. He knows that we're going to sin. He knows that we're going to struggle. He knows that trials and temptations are going to cause us to stumble and fall. But he says, don't be like Ronald. Look up. This day is approaching. The day of consummation when everything sad will come untrue. The day of glory when you will see Jesus as he is because you will be like him. The day of joy and gladness when you receive the reward promised to you. In Jesus Christ, you have an abiding possession, he says in verse 34. You have a great reward, he says in verse 35. So draw near and hold fast and stir one another up. Don't take Jesus for granted. Don't cast aside your inheritance. Instead, live with your eyes wide open. Live as those who have already received the greatest gift possible. Jesus Christ crucified, risen again, and coming soon. You are the vanguard of that great day. And when it dawns, you will receive all that God has promised to give you. Let's pray. Father, we are fools in so many ways. We know what's coming and we're still sometimes willing to give it up. And many of us won't even hold out for $2,800. So Lord, lift up our eyes. Fix our hope on Jesus. And strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Particularly when the days and nights are dark. When the world, the flesh, and the devil accuse us. When our own longings draw us away from Jesus, hold on to us when we are too weak to hold on to you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.